is small town music. This is big town music. He's ahead of his time, you know, but he can't use it. If only he could prove it. Well, tomorrow's just a song away, a song away, a song away. comedians reading from books written by the band members of Hello everyone and welcome to Rock Solid Presents Kiss and tell. Tonight, we will be reading from the four greatest books ever written by Ace Frehley, Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, and Peter Chris, the original members of KISS, everybody. <laughs> Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees. How did that happen? I don't know, but it did. Now, before we start, I must say we are coming to you live from the 16th annual SF Sketchfest presented by Audible. And I want to tell you that Gene Simmons' book and Paul Stanley's book are both available through Audible. Peter Chris and Ace Freely, sadly, are not. <laughs> All right, I want to get the. My name's Pat Francis. I host the Rock Solid podcast. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. It's an honor to be here at Sketchfest. I will be wearing these when I read, so feel free to take pictures and make fun. Uh, right now, I want to bring out one by one the people that will be reading these books. But before I do that, the person who will be uh, spinning some tunes, dropping the digital needle, is the rock solid producer, Mr. Kyle Dotson. Kyle! Hey. Kyle, real quick, we are staying uh, at a hotel uh, close to, do they call it Japantown? Is that what they call it? They do? We are staying right near Japantown, and we went to eat tonight. And Kyle, where did we eat? Oh, we ate at a great uh, little place uh, called Benihana. Yeah. So we felt like we should eat the food of the culture since we're there. So uh, Benihana seemed like the place. Mm -hmm. we, could, we could understand the menu. Uh, we knew what we were getting, and uh, we both could pronounce the word tempura. So, all right. First, I'm going to bring out the person who will be reading from Ace Frehley's No Regrets. You know him uh, from his many appearances on television. He's been in many, many movies by Judd Apatow. He has released a three-CD set this year called The Chronicles of Fetterman that chronicles his entire stand-up career. Mr. Wayne Fetterman! Thank you. Oh, thank you. I, see. I brought you a glass of water. Thank you, thank you. I brought this water out. Guys, thank you very much. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. Yeah, very nice. Nice. I'm going to take this out of here. Wayne, so you, you almost didn't make it today. Yeah, well, no, no, this, I was definitely going to You were here this. for this no matter no, what. No, no matter what, but there was a little flight situation going on, but we, it all worked out. Apparently, water freaks out Los Angeles area yep. quite a bit, and there's a lot of delays and panicking, and we, we worked it out. We worked it out. But People, it, they can't fly in it, they can't drive in it. 
I don't know why you're yelling at me, but yes, <laughs> that is correct. All right, the next gentleman joining the panel tonight is a, a guy I love. This guy is great. He's an exceptional live reader. You're going to find that out yeah. right now. He's going to be reading from Gene Simmons' Kiss and Make Up. And uh, if you like this book, you will also like his book, Party of One. It's a fantastic book. Mr. Dave Holmes. Come on out, Dave. He's an author and a humorist. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Hi. A humorist. Hi. I call Dave a humorist. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that. I like that you drop the H. I know. Humor. French. I, I can't. I'm not a very good. I can't read and I can't uh, pronounce uh, words. Okay, well, that's fine. How do you say it? Because I, I never. I'm from Pennsylvania and okay. I say words weird. Okay, I would say humorist. Humorist. Yeah. See, I never. I I just dropped the H. Yeah. I yeah. sound like a dummy. No, I think uh, having just heard your H, mm -hmm. drop it. I sound so dumb. I could. I sound so dumb. I could probably be president sometime. Oh, hey. Oh, hey guys. Political. Topical. Inappropriate. Political. Inappropriate. Topical. All right, we won't go there. Inappropriate. Goddamn right. Yeah, fuck yeah, right lady. Was that a lady or just a guy with a high voice? I don't yeah. know. Lady. Okay. You're a lady? I bet, I bet you is. Lady. All right, and now joining, joining our, uh, our troupe for the first time ever. He has not been here. He's filling in tonight. He's not filling in. That's, that's belittles his appearance. He is here to bring the show to the next level. Oh, yeah. He is a master improviser. He hosts his own podcast. Is that uh, your mic making that weird noise? I don't know. Got it. All right. You don't hear that at all? <laughs> like when you're talking? I don't know. That's my voice. What's the noise? Describe What's the noise? What's the noise? Describe the noise. Like a it's a little echoey and like boomy. It's That's a little it. echoey and boomy? Yeah. Well, I didn't set up the mics. I just... I, I'm just... Just talking through it. All right. I'm sorry that it's echoey and boomy, Wayne. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Curious. I can't believe I'm the only one that hears it, but apparently I am. So it's fine. Raise your hand if you can hear it. A couple people. Oh, Jesus, right. the whole crowd. Jesus, They're the against crowd. us already. Right. <laughs> he is a master improviser. He just ended a six year run of his own podcast called Pop My Culture. He is also one of the founders of SF Sketchfest. Please, big round of applause for Mr. Cole Stratton. Cole. There he is. Hi. Hello. How are you doing tonight, Cole? Good. This is a real rock and roll panel. I know. Yeah. Look at us. Look how bad we rock. Look how much. <laughs> it's about as rock and roll as a Holiday Inn Express. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Cole, how many shows are you doing at SF Sketchfest? Uh, way more than I should be. And is that because you know someone that possibly could get you those gigs? I know the other two founders. <laughs> okay, so, uh, fantastic. Yeah. Those would be, who are those people? Uh, David Jan Owen and Janet Varney. Janet Varney and David Owen. This thing. Yep. Are they your best friends? No. <laughs> <laughs> They're good friends, though. We go way back. Uh, now, I, uh, I sent you this book in the mail because it wasn't worth driving to your house to <laughs> no, bring it to right. you. I sent all these books to you guys in the mail. I'm like, I'm not driving to everyone's house. Uh, your first take of reading the Peter Chris book, wh what did you think when you're reading this book? What do you I think? I thought, well, he strung words together. <laughs> Uh, well, he, with the help of Larry Ratso Sloman. Larry Ratso Sloman. I think yeah. he uh, helped Howard Stern write one of his books. Let's see. Who, 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 who co-wrote all of these books? I want to give them credit. Let's do this right now. Well, Paul you, Stanley you mean wrote, who wrote all of these books? No, co-wrote. No, yeah. No, Who's nope. yours? Mine is he. Ace has two guys okay. oh. to help him out. 
Joe Layden was not enough, and then John Ostrowski. I just okay. want to give him credit. Right. Uh, you know who wrote uh, mine? Yeah. Gene Simmons and nobody else. Uh, Gene damn. Simmons and nobody damn. else. How about Paul? Yeah. My book is written by Paul Stanley alone, and this is the best book, and I'm going to show you why. <laughs> oh, my. I have just unmasked That's the great. star child. Do it again. <laughs> you want me to do it again? Oh, okay. Should I just should I pretend like I, I didn't say it at all? Okay, there, Wayne. Oh. He hasn't had any work done, right? That's what he looks like. Um, now, I'm assuming, Cole, and I could be wrong, Cole, you are not a Kiss fan. I wouldn't call myself a fan. Okay. I, no, I'm not, I'm not, I don't dislike them, right. but I wouldn't call myself a fan. And it's fine. It's fine yeah. that you're not. I think that's even cooler that you're going to read this and just be exasperated by the words. Yeah. I like them. Right. They are a good band. You never saw them in concert. I did not. How long, how long has uh, Sketchfest been going on? Uh, 16 years. Okay, when are you going to learn to read the room? No, being honest, no, bad would have been me going like, oh, they're terrible. I hate them. Like, no, it's not. I like them. They're a good band. I have no problem with Kiss. They're good. Yeah. I like Kiss. Now, you, you, the people down front have, um, have Kiss shirts on. There's, uh, four four jack-o'-lanterns or pumpkins, and they're each carved with the, the makeup of the original band members. Are those shirts, are those from when Kiss played Dodger Stadium? It's a, it's a pretty, that's a pretty cool mother-in-law. Yeah. Throwing up some Kiss shirts. That's very nice. Are you, and you're in the Kiss Army, you two? No, not at all? <laughs> and Did you get, you're in the front row. I feel like you got tricked into coming to the show. <laughs> She's, he's like, we, will you go to this show or when Rush, if Rush ever comes again, you, can you, will you go see Rush? <laughs> All right, let's moving down the line. Dave, yeah. you are not in the Kiss Army. Could either. not possibly care less. <laughs> Could not possibly care less. You're in the Kiss. Depeche Mode Army. Not really. Not really. No. The, the Cure Army. Sure. Yeah. What army would you be in? I don't know. Maybe maybe the uh, I don't uh, the Replacements Army. Maybe. Okay. There you go. There you go. Tom yeah. likes that. Thanks. Yeah. The okay. Mats, which I don't understand. Don't do that. You're don't not. Don't say the Mats. No. No. How do you? That's like saying Bobby De Niro. Don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. It's gross. Is that like saying the Stones? No, no, Stones, you can say okay. Stones, yeah. Oh. Uh, it's I'm, understood that you would drop the rolling. That's true. Yeah. I, uh, I am in the Kiss Army, but I can also say I, I love Kiss. Settle but, down. But they suck. <laughs> <laughs> that's where I am. I love them. I own every album. Meh, but they kind of suck, too. Yeah. So I'm right there. And Wayne, I know you're in... The, I saw you at a Kiss concert once. I w- I've been to a Kiss concert. I was actually drafted... Into the Kiss Army. What? But got out by joining the Grand Funk Railroad Air National Guard. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how we avoided service in the Army back then. Uh, That's for the older people. I moved to Los Angeles in 95, and the Kiss reunion tour was in 96. I was there. And I went to the, I went to the, I went to the Staples Center to see it with, uh, with my good friend. I don't think it was a Staples Center. It wasn't? Where was it? I think it was called the Forum. Was it at the forum? Yeah, yeah. Okay, easy. Uh, uh, why am I the one? You make the mistake, I correct it. Okay. I'm the jerk. You can, I think you could correct it a little nicer. Go, oh, oh I'm Pat, I'm sorry, Pat. I think you mean the Let's, forum. And I would have right. said, oh, okay. Okay, so it's at the forum. I think you are right. You're 100% right. 
And so my friend Jimmy Pardo were there, and we I had never met you before in my life, but I knew you from your work on television. Right. Because when I was a child, I would see you all the time <laughs> on A&E's Evening at the Improv, and I just... Well, I was, I did have a recurring role on Living Single, so a lot of people know me from that. Anyone? But, I was uh, on one episode of Dear John. Let's not talk about my <laughs> career. But anyway, we saw, we saw Wayne there, and I said to Jimmy, I go, hey, there's Wayne Fetterman. And then, so we would just yell his name out loud, and you know, we'd go, Fetterman! And he would just go, right here, guys, I'm right here. But we never came up and talked to you. We just yelled your name that out. That was a fun night. That was a fun, that was my first and only time I've, I was at a Kiss show. Really? Yeah. You've only seen him once? I've only seen him, although I did a whole routine about them in my act that's on the yeah, That sounds disingenuous. What do you mean? Well, you've only seen them once, and you do a whole routine about it, like you're an expert? Well, I think that with my takeaway, and with all due respect for the Kiss fans and the crowd, okay. I feel like they're more magicians than musicians. <laughs> yeah. In what everything, way? Well, everything is designed to distract you from their music. <laughs> it's all misdirection, and they're... It's one of the greatest shows I've ever seen, but it was like, oh, okay. Well, I hope, I'm hoping tonight when I read, because I'm not a good reader, that I hope Dave spits blood to distract you <laughs> yeah, yeah. from how bad I'm reading. That's yeah. good. They're geniuses. Kyle, you have a Kiss t-shirt on. Are you in I the do. Kiss Army? Uh, not officially. I mean, I like Kiss. But you don't have a... Are you in the beer army right now? You seem like a little drunk. <laughs> no, I'm fine. Okay. Because you have a tiny body, and I know you drank a Jack and Coke and then a beer. Yeah, and I had a beer this morning, so... Yeah. It's an un unprofessional producer is what I call that. But how many times have you seen Kiss? I've seen them three times. One time, you had tickets in the front row. Yep. How did you get those? Uh, you. You got them for me. And who am I, who am I in relation to you? Uh, you are my uncle. Uh, and, it's called a fuck, fucking good uncle. And my, and, uh, and my mom took me. Your mom took How old were you? I was like... 14 or 15, maybe? Yeah. Okay. And you guys yeah. were front row seats, and when they first came out and the bombs went off, what did you and your mom we do? We jumped out of our seats. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's get this underway. Here's how it's going to work. We're going to start with Wayne. We're going to get down the line. We're going to read whatever we want to read. Maybe oh. if, if Wayne reads something, and then we come to Dave, and Dave goes, oh, I liked what Wayne read. I'm going to read uh, Gene's take on that same thing. That's what we'll do. But if not... You know, it's just loosey-goosey, oh. and we will, uh, Kyle's going to punctuate each reading with a little music. Can we hear just a little music, just to hear something that we might hear, like, after someone reads? What would we maybe hear? Uh, you might hear something like this. Strutter. Now, that's about hookers, right? I think so. Their lyrics are great. Okay. <laughs> Wayne, are you ready to take I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. For those who don't, I hope there's some people here who don't know the story of Kiss, because it's pretty phenomenal. This guy, Ace Fraley, I think is how you pronounce his name, was the guitar player, later gets fired from the band, you'll hear about that, but was one of the original four members. And this is, uh, well, this is, per this is pretty in, this is like four years into their success. Here we go. The marketing silliness... Reached a peak of sorts with Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park, a 1978 made-for-TV movie with a plot so ridiculous that I start laughing just thinking about it. We played superhero versions of ourselves, locked in a battle with a demented, with a demented scientist bent on taking over a popular amusement park by creating four androids that look just like us. Okay, 
If you look at it now, the movie seems kind of cool and campy, but the problem was it wasn't meant to be that way. I watch it now and get a kick out of it, but I know Gene, who basically started the band, is embarrassed about it. There were a lot of bad ideas surrounding that TV movie project. The main one, who in their right mind thought the four guys in Kiss could act? (laughs) When I first heard about the product, I thought, this might be fun, but I didn't take it seriously. I should have had some idea what to expect when I got the original script and discovered I didn't have a single line of dialogue. (laughs) Not one, every time, the guys, this gets good, every time my character was supposed to speak, the only thing would come out of his mouth was the sound of a parrot. Awk! That's exactly what was written on the page. Three capital letters. A-W-K. Okay, a lot of Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park was filmed on location at Magic Mountain where we actually performed a somewhat staged Kiss concert, although the interior scenes were done at Culver Studios. This is where it gets good. Regardless of where we were filming, I had to be on the set at 8 o'clock in the morning, which is a complete drag for me in those days. And it wasn't like I was getting eight hours of beauty sleep each night. I was busy. Busy being ace. Hitting the clubs, partying to the wee hours. Who the hell wants to get up at 7 a.m. with a hangover? Not me, that's for sure. It didn't take long to figure out that most of this movie-making process was about hanging out in your trailer all day, waiting for someone to tell you they need you on the set. A couple of times during the movie, I arrived bright and early, threw on my makeup and costume, got ready to go, and then just sat in my trailer. That made me really crazy. Here I was, one of the stars of the film, and you think, maybe they could have been a little more considerate. Maybe let me know the night before. Don't these fucking people plan? Truth is, I was doing a lot of coke at the time, and my nerves were becoming frayed, to say the least. I was getting an ounce of blow delivered to my trailer about once a week. The delivery boy was actually one of the actors on the set. For the most part, I was clueless. And I didn't realize it till this day that that's the way movies worked. The downtime is a big part of an actor's day. Maybe the biggest part. So the fourth or fifth time it happened, I snapped. I went off on the producers. I said, fuck this. I'm out of here. And then in parentheses, he writes, which as I now realize was extremely unprofessional behavior. Okay, okay, wait, 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 okay. Right out of the Wait, so hold on. That's our first, that we're, this gets so hold on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm back in New York. Back in New York. Sure. Okay. I'm back. So wait. It sounds like Ace did some things, but then in retrospect, he would have done them differently. Which is what? What does that sound like to you? It sounds like maybe he has some regrets. About yeah, that. but what's the what's the name of the book? No regrets. No regrets. No regrets. No regrets. Is the name of the book. No regrets. <laughs> But he seems like he's yeah, really, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's giving he me mixed signals. <laughs> Jesus. Well, oh. could be a misdirect. Could, could be, be a, a misdirect. misdirect. Could be a misdirect. Well, coming off of what uh, what Wayne just read from Ace's book, I will jump right in with uh, with Paul. And Paul starts his uh, this passage by saying, "Ace was an alcoholic." <laughs> <laughs> But in the be- 
beginning, he stayed sober until after the show, at which point it was normal for him to drink until he was unable to stand. It was still funny then. For me, the ultimate gauge of whether his drinking was a problem was whether he was doing his job, and he was. Thank you, (laughs) ma'am. The woman's like, okay, then what's the problem? He's doing it. What he wanted to do offstage was his business. I agree with that. Do whatever the fuck you want. (laughs) One night I found him crawling down the hall of a motel on all fours talking to himself. What are you doing, man? I ask. I've got my little people with me, he said, (laughs) gesturing around himself. As I tried to get past him, he said, oh, you just stepped on one. (laughs) In some ways it was pathetic, but in other ways, I have to say it, it was funny. (laughs) We laughed at Ace a lot. And not in a demeaning way. He was amusing. He was an oddball. He constantly told jokes. Only later did it become ugly. Once he mixed in Valium and cocaine, it wasn't funny anymore. (laughs) Initially, though, he was just a likable kook. At one point, Ace got the nickname The Chef. With the exception of Gene, he never took his clothes off or showered in front of anyone else. We often didn't wear a lot, of, lot in the dressing room before or after a concert. One night while we were sitting in front of our mirrors putting on our makeup, Peter walked up behind Ace and put his dick on his shoulder. <laughs> Ace very nonchalantly turned to the side and gave it a kiss. <laughs> so he became the chef. Because he had to taste everything. (laughs) Wouldn't you be a chef if you had to cook everything? Yeah. Like if if he fried Peter's dick up in a pan, then you call him the chef. This I call him the taste tester. All right. (laughs) We also called Ace Scraps. Back then, because he often reached across the table and took stuff off our plates. Are you eating that? He'd ask and then grab. If someone had shrimp, Ace would eat the tails you left on the plate. Sometimes in motels, he would rummage through discarded room service trays as we walked down the hallways. It wasn't unusual to spend 10 or more hours a day in the station wagon together. Ace kept us laughing. One time, Peter, who was older than all of us and had a long, mopey face, (laughs) said, I have the baby face in the band. Ace said, yeah, maybe a baby walrus. Ace is so funny. I could see how he kept them laughing. I'm telling you. Another time in the car, Ace said, I could really use a drink. This was not unusual for Ace. You can drink cologne, I said. Really? Sure, I said. Cologne is alcohol. So he screwed off the spray cap and took a swig of my Aramis. He Aramis. spit it. How do you say it? Aramis. Aramis? I mean, no, you said it right, but fucking Aramis? Aramis. <laughs> Jesus, Paul. Pull what it would it be today? Today it would be Axe, right? He it would be, yeah. Drink yeah. my Axe. No, yeah, that was... That was high karate. That, yeah, high that was karate. a tiny step above high karate. Uh, he spit it right out. We all laughed, including Ace. Because Ace is dumb, right? <laughs> I thought, of us four, I thought of us as the four musketeers and figured we'd be together forever. We were the Vikings, the Huns, the Mongols, wreaking havoc in every town we invaded. We were the Beatles. 
way, they were not the Beatles. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, we were the Beatles skiing down the hill in help. We were Kiss. It's only, it's only right. Yeah, to lick, lick it, it up. up. Lick it. It's only right. That's what he did to Peter's dick. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I can either give you Gene Simmons' take on the events of Phantom in the Park or, or his take on Ace's audition. What, what do you feel? What do you guys think? What do you think? Ace's audition? Ace's audition? All right. Well, the people have spoken. Two people uh, have spoken. Okay. Yeah, two, pe- two people in weird T-shirts have spoken. <laughs> Apparently, they're running the show. With, with T-shirts with backstories that I frankly do not believe. Uh, all right. So they're, they're, they're having auditions. Meanwhile, we still didn't have a guitarist. One guy named Bob Kulik had played around town. We really liked him. He was close to making it. And we were giving him the golden rules. Number one, you practice all the time. Number two, no phone calls. While we were talking to Bob, in walks this strange-looking guy with two different colored sneakers. One was orange, and one was red. We had chairs in the back lined up so you could come in and sit and wait your turn. Completely oblivious to the fact that we were still talking to Bob, this new guy plugged into the Marshall amplifier and started playing. Hey, I said, are you out of your mind? Sit down and wait a second, will ya? It was like he didn't even hear me. He just kept playing. We excused Bob Kulik and told him that we would call him later. We sat this new guy down. You better be good, I said. Because two notes into it, if you suck, you're out on your ass. He stared just straight at me without any defiance or remorse. We played deuce for him twice, and the third time he got ready to play his solo. And it just fit. Here was this troublemaker who couldn't match his sneakers. And didn't have the good manners to wait his turn, and he just fit. What's your name, I said. He said it was Paul Fraley. Well, I said, we can't have two Pauls in the band. (laughs) Then he actually turned around and said, call me Ace. I said, call me King. I wasn't joking. Neither was he. (laughs) That was the foursome. Early on, it was very clear that Ace would enter the band warts and all. He had some very bad self-esteem problems and was a drinker. But in those early days, Paul was actually the most volatile. Mostly it was a cultural divide, one that I couldn't imagine crossing. When we first met Peter, I knew it was going to be a different world because Peter walked up and said, Hi, I'm Peter Chris Cuola, and I've got a nine-inch dick. (laughs) Paul and I looked at each other quizzically. We were amused, but we didn't know what to make of it. Obviously, guys say stuff with bravado to each other all the time, but half the time it's to get a rise out of you, or a joke. But the way he spoke, his tone, his attitude, they were all bizarre. (laughs) The same kind of thing happened with Ace. We were at one of our first shows, and the truck was loaded up, and we were ready to leave. Ace wasn't doing anything. He always had guys who lifted things for him. And he was peeing. We're waiting for him, and the truck's lights are on him. He walks over and says... This is what my dick looks like when it's soft. He wanted to show us that he had the inches. (laughs) 
I like that it was like a two note audition. <laughs> yeah. Two notes. Doom, doom. Sorry. That's it. You're gone. Nope. Get out. You suck. You're out. You're weird. You're weird. Your sneakers. Well, you've heard their music. I think that's all you need. <laughs> two notes. Hey, give them a couple of bars. Come on. Yeah, that's true. Uh, all right. Well, there's a, a segment in here also on uh, uh, Peter's uh, from Makeup to Breakup uh, on the Phantom of the Park, which I think is good too. So okay, I'll, cool. I'll start with that. Uh, I was going into the shooting of the film with mixed feelings to begin with. I'd always wanted to act, but the plot of this film was that we had to use superpowers to save a California amusement park from destruction at the hands of an evil inventor. It was the lamest thing I could have imagined. When I was told that we had to fight the Wolfman one day and Frankenstein the next, my brain started to hurt. Why should I have powers to levitate things with my hands? What did any of this have to do with rock and roll? Our fans were going to think that we were pansies. I became a drummer in a rock and roll band because I was a rebel. I was fighting the system, fighting the Vietnam War. <laughs> now we were just buffoons. What happened to the guys who got up there and did God of Thunder and Black Diamond? All of a sudden we're doing slapstick? I knew right then and there my career as a rock musician was down the toilet. Before the script was written, we met with the screenwriters so they could just get a feel for how we talked. Ace refused to even talk to them. He just mumbled his non sequiturs like, I kills them all, or 13 for a dozen, and made his crazy parrot sounds. <laughs> so when the script came in, Ace had no lines. Once in a while, he'd just go, arg. He was furious. Ace felt the same contempt for the film. We'd drink and snort coke all day while we waited for our calls. <laughs> Very professional. Very professional. <laughs> we'd get so fucked up that when we finally got the call, we'd stumble out of the trailer slurring our words and hitting the walls and knocking props over. <laughs> <laughs> One night, the director wanted to meet with me privately and read me the riot act. He was lecturing me, telling me that I had to cool it with the drugs and stop getting high with Ace because we were getting behind on the budget. Yeah, fuck you, I said. <laughs> I don't care what happens with this fucking movie. I'm a drummer in a rock band, and I don't give a shit about you or Hanna-Barbera or the Wolfman and Dracula. You can all go fuck yourselves. I got up and walked out and left him sitting there. The next day, he came up to me and said, How are you feeling today, Peter? He asked. Same fucking way I felt yesterday, I said. All I had to look forward to was Deb visiting me. We would screw so much that my trailer was moving up and down constantly. One day she came over and asked if I would fuck her with my makeup on. We started banging and there was a mirror right near us and I looked at it and I saw my face and I freaked out. <laughs> my makeup was running. My whiskers were all askew. <laughs> the black and silver had rubbed off on her face. The lipstick was all over the place. I just looked demonic. I realized that I was out of control, that I had lost my fucking mind and that I was fucking up the show but I didn't care. <laughs> After a few weeks of shooting, I'd had enough. I walked off the set and went back to the hotel. I sat there and figured that I had a lot of money now. I had a beautiful new girlfriend. I was about to do a solo album. What do I need this shit for? I was a big enough star that I could put together my own band and do well. So I called our loyal Paul Marshall and told him to fly out to LA because I wanted out of the band. You're out of your fucking mind, Peter, he screamed. We're in the middle of making a movie. You can't just leave this. They kept working on me, and I agreed to finish the movie, and then we'd see where we were at. So I went back to set, and now it was time to shoot the Beth scene. 
It was a love scene, and they were going to let me fake play an acoustic guitar. The original script had me alone singing the song to the leading lady, but I got to the set, and the script had changed. All of a sudden, Paul was playing the guitar, the band was sitting around the pool, and I was sitting there with my dick in my hand singing the song to her. What happened to me with the guitar? Well, everybody knows you can't play, Paul said. How the fuck do you know that? You mean everyone on this set knows that because you fucking told them? You're just afraid I'm going to get some camera time. That's how the arguments would start. So Paul got the guitar part, and the next thing I knew, all they needed was the music. They didn't need the vocals. I went ballistic. I threatened to quit again, so they put the scene back, but it wasn't good. Kiss doesn't sit around a pool with me resting my boot on a diving board singing Beth to some chick who wasn't even particularly hot. <laughs> my next big scene involved me opening a box to reveal a talisman inside. In the movie, our lair had just been robbed, and we were afraid that the talisman had been stolen. I was supposed to say, wow, they didn't get the talisman. But it was so, I was so loaded, it kept coming out as talisman, like in that Harry Belafonte song, Deo. <laughs> Peter, it's talisman, the director would say. Okay, right, I said, and they'd roll tape again. Wow, they didn't get the talisman, I said. <laughs> Paul and Gene started dancing and singing, Hey, Mr. Taleman, taleme bananas. <laughs> I lost it. You fucking assholes, how dare you make fun of me? I screamed and threw the box against the wall, shattering it. I walked to the set and Ace started going, arg, arg. I think he contractually like mentions that he wrote Beth like every <laughs> other page in this yeah. book. Yeah, like constantly. He, that's, I love he, that he has to. Now you you gave a little music uh, trivia there. You yelled out the word Bob Ezrin to uh, to no fanfare. No, it was just he wrote yeah. it. He Bob Ezrin co wrote it and he produced the album. Of course, of course. Right. Yeah, yeah. Made a lot of money. I think more. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Well, first of all, I love that we learn a different perspective. <laughs> That's my favorite thing. Okay, this is going to be about the time that Peter gets fired. What? He seems like such a professional drummer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to do, just going to read it because this is insane. Okay. There were problems that surfaced during the making of Dynasty. Is that an album there? That's, yeah, that's an album. Okay. Peter had been involved in a bad car accident in L.A., and had become increasingly reliant on pain medications. Sometimes this medication affected his drumming and gave him mood swings, which provoked internal conflicts within the band. This is, of course, from Ace, who's on coke the entire time. Uh, and, and Ace is Peter's friend. Right, 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 right. So they decide to get a new drummer. So let's, I just got to cut to this part. Okay. Finding someone to fill Peter's shoes wasn't an easy task. We auditioned several great drummers, but settled on a relatively unknown kid from Brooklyn named Eric Carr. He was a good replacement, but he wasn't Peter. And here's an example. There's a time we were touring in Canada, not long after Eric joined the band, and one day Eric and I were out shopping and ended up in a big toy store at a mall. <laughs> As we passed the model airplanes and cars, I was overcome with a feeling of nostalgia. Wow. It's been a long time since I sniffed glue. <laughs> and I knew there was a difference between glue in this store and the glue they were selling back in the United States. The regulations in Canada are way different. 
<laughs> this shit is the real deal. Like the glue I sniffed as a kid back in the Bronx. This is a drug addict, obviously. This is that's all they dream about. Okay. My curiosity got the better of me, so I decided to ask Eric for a favor. Hey man, could you buy some glue for me? Again, this is why he's different than Peter. Uh, Eric looked at me like it was crazy. Why, why can't you buy it yourself? A fair question. And one I couldn't readily answer. It had to do more with paranoia and the feeling that my well-documented reputation of getting loaded, if anyone recognized me, there might be repercussions. So I guess he was worried about sure. that. Maybe he had a regret. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hardly anyone knew what Eric looked like without makeup. He could buy a few tubes of glue. This is in a book without so much as raising an eyebrow. And he agreed reluctantly. We went back to the hotel, and after a few drinks, I decided to satisfy my curiosity. I emptied the tube into a paper bag. I guess that's how you do it. Yeah, yes. And got down to business. <laughs> okay, this... I remember hearing the sniffing glue is one of the most toxic things you could do your body and your brain. Like most drugs, the chemicals in glue are metabolized in the liver. I knew all of that, but I figured, what the hell, one more time wouldn't kill me. I knew plenty of guys who sniffed hundreds of times, and they were still walking around, although they were missing millions of brain cells. Look, I'm not advocating glue sniffing, and I don't recommend that people try any of the shit I did, but that's my history. Mainly, I was curious about whether sniffing glue was the terrifying experience I recalled. Luckily, it wasn't. I got dizzy and a short-lived euphoric estate. At its peak, I saw pink elephants floating across the ceiling like Disney's Fantasia. The high lasted only 15 minutes, and then it was gone. Disillusioned and frustrated, I tossed the bag into the garbage can and then just cracked open another beer. <laughs> wow. Some cautionary tale. I was really hoping that he knew a guy like I knew Elmer's. I went down. <laughs> I love that he's surprised by the fact that like glue's metabolized in the liver. It's, it's every. It's all metabolized. It's not. It's not going to be like. Oh, that's that's in the wrist. But everything else is metabolized through the liver. Come on, Ace. Uh, now, full disclosure for the audience, Kyle. Uh, on January 29th, where will you and I be? Uh, we will be at the uh, Ace Fraley concert. <laughs> <laughs> at the Canyon Club in Agora Hills. Yep. All right. Hopefully he will not be sniffing glue that night. I hope he does. All right, true. <laughs> He's clean now. He's clean now? Yeah. Now. It's depressing. <laughs> He's probably be playing better, but not as fun. No, not so. No, okay. <laughs> He uses glue all the time for his scrapbooking now. <laughs> uh, by the way, my book is uh, it, my book is actually autographed. There you go. Look at that. Fuck yeah, it is. Didn't didn't stop me from using a highlighter through it and bring down the value. But anyway, so is mine, Larry Ratso Sloman. <laughs> <laughs> all right, this is a this is a short passage, but this is about. Uh, in, in Paul's book, Paul likes to really tear Peter and Ace down at every chance he can get. And we all know, it, the most popular Kiss song of all time, or the most well-known, is probably what? 
Beth, right, thank you. First answer is correct. So here's, uh, here's Paul talking about when they're getting ready to record Beth. And the first name I'm going to say is Bob, and that is the aforementioned producer Bob Ezrin. Bob wrote the lion's share of Beth using a few lines and a melody that Peter brought in. Peter had a co-writer on every song he ever wrote because he couldn't really write. Song structure and concepts like making your lyrics rhyme were totally lost on him. In the case of Beth, Bob wrote most of it, even though the original idea Peter brought in had already been done with a co-writer. To get the vocal for Beth, Bob had to record Peter singing the song probably a dozen times and then cobble together a single version from the passable parts of all those takes. Peter's chances of being able to sing a song off the cuff were about as good as my chances of throwing a penny and hitting the moon. <laughs> Very specific image. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Sounds like he's tried. Yeah. yeah. Let me give this a whirl just to see if that'll work in my book. <laughs> it would be a challenge for him to carry a tune in a bucket. Even if we sang a note to him, he couldn't find it. But since we had always presented our Beatles-based fantasy to the world, four band members all contributing equally, at some point, Peter began to believe his own press. Perception became reality to him, despite the fact that we created the perception ourselves. We made it, we made it out as if we lived like the help-era Beatles. We all made music together as equals, but that was never the case. And who should know that better than the people who were actually there and not contributing. Peter and Ace's contributions were never as substantial as we made them out to be in the press. The fact of the matter was that two guys, Gene and me, were the engineers and motiva motivators and did 80% of the work. Basically, Paul's saying, you know all that shit music? Well, Ace and Peter didn't write it. Yeah, that's what. Gene and I wrote 80% of that crap. Yeah. Enjoy it. Yeah. I, I love that they compare themselves to the Beatles only in terms of scenes from Beatles movies. <laughs> yes. Not actual music. No. No. Just shit that goes on in Beatles yep. movies. And then went on to make a movie. Yeah, they sure did. They, sh they did. Um, but we're on a Peter moment right now, so okay. I want to I want to I want to stick with Peter because I hate Cole Stratton. Oh. And, uh, okay, so here's here's you're not going to put your dick on his shoulder, are you? That's fine. All right. Um, okay, uh, Peter is frustrated, and I think I think that's justified. Um, so here's here's a Peter moment. Uh, by the time of the Dynasty recording sessions, the whole band was being pulled apart. The biggest problem was Peter, who by this point was becoming unhealthy, in part because of the chemicals, and certainly because he wasn't allowed to play drums. <laughs> we had always been able to placate him before, but this time, even under more pressure, he became harder to control. As we got ready to finish Dynasty, Bill O'Quan, let's say, alerted us to the idea of a Return to Kiss campaign and told us, I don't need these for reading. That we, were, <laughs> that we were going in for a cover photo shoot with Scavulo, 
the big fashion photographer. He put us in straight jackets. We got the photos done, and they looked great. A few days later, we did a video session for a series of television commercials keyed to the same theme. That session went less smoothly. <laughs> the director insisted on take after take, and the day was getting longer. Peter was especially unhappy with the way it was going, so he ran to the bathroom and started to complain. Bill tried to calm, Bill tried to calm Peter down. Peter then got so upset, either with himself or with the way things were going, and I assume that the chemicals in his system had something to do with it, that he took his fist and smashed it into a glass case so hard that a shard went right up through his hand. He had to be taken to a hospital and stitched up. Now there was a question of whether there was even going to be a tour, whether, his, whether Peter's damaged tendons would allow him to use his right hand at all. We were horrified. Our initial thought right away was for Peter's safety, because we lived with him and cared about him, no matter the constant torture that he put us through. But afterwards, when the shock of the accident wore off, Paul and I got angry. Oh my God, we would say. What an idiot! <laughs> Can you imagine being so upset at anything that you drive your fist through a glass case? The whole James Dean lifestyle had never appealed to me. <laughs> because after that guy dies in a car crash, I'm gonna sleep with his girlfriend. <laughs> So one theme I've noticed is that uh, <laughs> Peter tends to get hurt a lot. Yeah. Yep. And uh, he had a major accident. I think I want to read about yeah. that. Okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> I was almost totally bathed in that white light when I began to hear some noises. They seemed indistinct at first, but then I thought that I heard my name being repeated over and over. And in the background, I could hear horrific screaming in the words, Oh, God, help me. Help me. I can't take the pain. Finally, I opened my eyes and saw four doctors staring into my face. I was really pissed off that they had prevented me from going to heaven. <laughs> Shut the fuck up, I yelled at the source of that horrible screaming. <laughs> Take it easy, Mr. Chris, one of the doctors said. You're in a hospital and you're in good hands, but you got a little bent out of shape in that accident. <laughs> they filled me in. Fritz had been doing 90 miles per hour when he hit two telephone poles, knocked down a mailbox, and sideswiped four cars before ramming into a huge pole that caused the engine to blow up. The explosion threw me. I'm surprised. The but first of all, I'm surprised there wasn't a fire extinguisher they run over as well, and right. that went up in the air. That sounds like a cartoon. Keep, continue. <laughs> I just like that they had that kind of detail for it. There was two telephone poles, a mailbox. Then an anvil fell on my head. Right. <laughs> two guys were carrying a pane of glass across the roadway. A cartoon coyote came out. Yep. There was a piano precariously balanced. <laughs> <laughs> the explosion threw me through the windshield and 50 feet into the air, at which point I went face first into a curb in a fetal position. When the cops arrived at the scene, they didn't even know I was there. They thought I was just some debris on the side of the road. <laughs> when they finally found me, my heart had stopped and they had to revive me on the scene. As it was, I had broken all my ribs and all my fingers when I went through the windshield, <laughs> as well as busting my nose and sustaining a concussion. This is a guy who's a drummer constantly breaking his breaking hands. Breaking his hands. <laughs> over and over. <laughs> I was the lucky one. Fritz had been belted in and he got caught in the inferno. He had burns over 70% of his body, which is why he was in such agony. He was so badly burnt that they had to give him morphine through the bottom of his feet. Bill O'Coin was one of the first civilians on the scene and he took pictures of the wreck, but he would never show them to me. They were too horrific. <laughs> 
They wheeled me into a private room and I passed out again. When I came to, the adrenaline had worn off and I was in agony. Lydia moved into a nearby hotel and visited me every day. Unbeknownst to her, Deb drove by the hospital every day and looked up at my room. She was afraid to come in and bump into Lydia, so she sent me a single red rose. I had so many flowers in that room that it looked like a funeral parlor. But they started getting stinky and making me sick, so I threw all of them out, except for that single red rose, which by then had withered considerably. Why are you keeping that one rose, Lydia asked one day. I don't know. I lied. (laughs) There's something about it. Good cover, good cover. (laughs) After a few weeks in the hospital, Paul came to visit. He walked in indignantly and looked down at me with disgust. Look at you. You really fucked up, he said. No shit, I said. How long are you going to be here, he asked. I don't know, a while, I said. You have to do your solo album. How could you do this? You're really a fucking idiot, he said. (laughs) Well, I just came to see how you're doing, he said. You're not going to see me again. Oh, and Gene wanted me to tell you that he thinks you're a loser and a moron and you deserve not everything you got. (laughs) Good luck on your solo album, but he refuses to set foot in this hospital. Really? Yeah, he wanted me to relay that message, Paul said. (laughs) Well, so you did, so get the fuck out. (laughs) Unlike the other two, Ace was by my side from the get-go. He came in the day after I was admitted. Cat, look at you, he said. I'm in such pain, brother, I complained. Fuck this, he said, and stormed out looking for a doctor. Seconds later, he dragged the doctor into the room. You give him something for his fucking pain or I'll burn this hospital down. (laughs) Better yet, I'll buy it and fire every motherfucker in here, Ace said. It's like a rock and roll terms of endearment moment. It's great. (laughs) A security guard came into the room because he had heard all the commotion, but Ace didn't care. Bring in more bodyguards. I'll kick their asses too, he said. (laughs) One night I was lying in bed in the hospital when this young nurse came in. Hi, Mr. Chris. How are you feeling? I feel like shit, I said. I need painkillers. I can't sleep. Well, I'll take care of you. She opened up the IV and got some of that morphine drip. Are you feeling better? Yes, I said dreamily. I can make you feel even better, she said. And she pulled the blanket down and gave me a blowjob. I couldn't believe it. It was like something you'd read in Penthouse Forum. Except she wasn't good looking. has to comment on the, the women's looks. Always. <laughs> Not that I complained. When she finished, she smiled. I just wanted to be able to say that I gave Peter Chris a blowjob. I'm a big fan of your band. It was a great blowjob. <laughs> I was coming and I was in pain and I had a kink in my back all at the same time. <laughs> she went and got a basin, wet a face cloth and washed my dick. Wash my balls and put the blanket back on me. <laughs> Good night, Mr. Chris, she said. I never saw her again. <laughs> I love, you know, that nurse could have just said she gave him a blowjob. Right. She if that was her goal in life, to be able to say that. She could have just said she that. She could have said it. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. So we, we're gonna we're gonna go out of order, Dave. Yeah. You wanna you wanna chime yeah, in sorry. here with something? I do, I do, because I mean, you mentioned Peter's car accident. Gene mentions it as well. Um, <laughs> I mentioned it. Yeah. yeah. When we did Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park, Peter had been involved in yet another car accident. He skidded 400 feet before he crashed, and he wound up in the hospital. When he did speak in the movie, he was impossible to understand because of his thick Brooklyn accent. <laughs> So his voice was dubbed by someone else. 
Even the simple matter of getting Peter and Ace in front of the camera didn't always work out. Sometimes they went missing. They just didn't come to the set. The only solution was to use doubles. For Peter, we had a 55-year-old guy, and we put makeup on him. For Ace, an African-American. We had two writers with us who were writing the script for Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, and they wanted to get a sense of how everybody talked before they wrote the script. Ace, in those days, was non-communicative. He didn't say much. No matter what you said to him, he would make this parrot sound. Awk. Nobody understood it. And when he wasn't making the parrot noise, he would mumble nonsense to himself. 13 for a dozen, or I kills them all one by one. And then he would laugh. Those phrases meant something, only to Ace, and nobody had a clue what he was talking about. When the script came in, Ace's character never spoke. He only said, Awk. Ace was furious. He wanted to know why they didn't give him any lines. To their credit, they turned around and said, What are you, nuts? You have never said anything to us except Awk. We thought that's the way you want to talk. Ace said he had a lot to say. Well... He should have said it. (laughs) Making the movie wasn't smooth, it wasn't easy, and it wasn't particularly fun. But like almost everything else we did then, it was a success. just read quickly. Well, hold on. The one thing that is absolutely positively true yeah. is that Ace did say off. Yeah. <laughs> it has to be true. That's they all say oh, it. Right. So even Ace says it. Now, before I get to the part about they all do solo albums, which is a crazy part of this story, I just want to respond quickly to his learning that a black guy is playing oh, him. Okay. 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 <laughs> I wasn't going to read this, but it's just okay. Apparently he had left the set he goes, I didn't learn until much. I didn't learn until much later when I saw the movie for the first time that the filming had actually gone on without me, <laughs> <laughs> including a scene where a character's waged an epic battle with Frankenstein, Dracula, and the Wolfman. My character was a big part of that, and in the opening scenes, I'm present. But once the action start, someone else takes over. <laughs> Under the best of circumstances, the whole thing would look silly, but on top of that, the director enlisted the service of my stunt double to finish the remaining shots. Usually a stunt double is used only in distant shots or quick cutaways, but in my case, my double was a black man. A terrific guy, hell of a stunt double, but he didn't look anything like me facially. And even with all the makeup, it was painfully obvious I mean, you can see it clearly if you watch the movie. During the fight scene in the Chamber of Horrors with Frankenstein, he gets thrown into a pillar with a couple skeletons tied to it. Just hit the pause button and say, hey, man, that's not Ace. That's a black dude. He just has a big uh, Cosby Kid afro and the Ace makeup on. That's great. Okay, Johnny, let me get to this, because this is the craziest thing that happens in Kisses. They all do solo albums. Everyone does a solo album. They all come out the the same day. At the height, yeah, okay. So Ace Frehley... By the way, the Beatles never did that (laughs) in any of their movies. Nope. (laughs) Ace Frehley was released on September 18th, 1978. As a matter of fact, all four Kiss albums, solo albums, were released that day. A marketing stunt orchestrated by Neil Bogart... 
Head of Casablanca Records? Yep. Yeah. In an attempt to maximize publicity. Uh, the results were mixed, to say the least. <laughs> Critically speaking, Ace Frehley was the most successful of the four records. <laughs> I expected that. My goal was to make a really good, solid guitar-based rock album. I did that. And to shock just about everyone else, Ace Frehley was also the most successful of the solo albums from a commercial standpoint, outselling the three albums combined and producing a top 20 single in New York Groove. I'm proud of that album this week. He's out of his mind. It confirmed <laughs> what I always believed. My musical instincts were strong. For all the success I had with Kiss, the experience had somehow managed to erode my confidence. The solo project gave me a chance. It gave us all a chance to stretch out artistically. I don't mind admitting I felt a strong competitive streak during the making of Ace Frehley. I remember hearing other stories about what the other guys were doing. How were they, they were putting the records together and what strategies they had. When I heard that Gene Simmons was going to have a bunch of guest stars on our records, I couldn't imagine what he was thinking. Helen Reddy. <laughs> really, Gene? What the fuck? <laughs> Even in Kiss, Gene would sometimes make choices that were so wrong. I know this probably sounds like jealousy or envy, given the Kiss is a rock juggernaut after all these years, but it's really not. Peter and I were the ones with the street sense, with the bullshit detectors, if you will. Paul had, Gene had no street sense whatsoever, especially Gene. He lived a very sheltered life. Sometimes he'd come up with ideas, I'd just say, what the fuck? What are you, fucking nuts? You can't do that. But it was all about making money, advancing and expanding the brand. It was never about art, never about music. <laughs> the people you choose to work with on a solo album says a lot about you. But I don't think Gene realized it, or maybe he didn't care. Half the time, I don't know what was going on in Gene's mind, but I could always see the dollar signs reflected in his eyes. It's because he was Jewish. Okay. <laughs> he was Jewish. Yeah. She, I think he still is. <laughs> All right, so I, I told you that Paul likes to tear down uh, Ace and Peter, but um, his first meeting with Gene doesn't go that well either. So let's uh, let's let me read Paul's take on uh, on meeting Gene for the first time. One night, I went over to Steve's Manhattan apartment in Washington Heights, not far from where I lived as a little kid. Steve's room was painted black, and in the room was a big burly guy. Stan said, "Steve, now Stan." Paul Stanley's real name is Stanley Eisen, and Gene Simmons' real name is Gene Klein. Okay. So, Stan, Steve said, this is Gene Klein. Gene had long hair and a beard under his double chin. He was very overweight. <laughs> I was pretty stocky back then, but this guy was huge. He was wearing overalls and sandals and looked like something from the then new country music TV show, Hee Haw. Gene made it clear right away that he didn't see us as his musical equals. He played some songs for us that I thought were sort of goofy. Then he challenged me to play one of my songs, so I played something called Sunday Driver, which I later retitled Let Me Know. These things don't even sound alike at all. <laughs> he seemed completely thrown that someone besides John Lennon 
Paul McCartney and Gene Klein could write a song. It was a moment of realization for him. There was another guy who could actually write a song. He was visibly taken aback. He mumbled, hmm. First of all, I don't know how you mumble, hmm. Was he like, he mumbled, hmm. I was annoyed that he saw himself as operating at a level that qualified him to pass judgment on me, particularly because I hadn't thought much of his songs. The idea that he was judging me seemed arrogant, condescending, and ludicrous. He made it clear that he felt himself to be judging from a higher plane, and I didn't like that at all. Gene, of course, had no clue about my ear. Okay, Paul Stanley was born with only one ear. It's true. His one ear was, like, deformed. I'm going to say like this. And then he eventually had it fixed. That could be why he lisps, because he... I'm not, I'm not kidding. I mean, I, I make fun of his lisp, and yet it could be because of that. So uh, I just had a realization that maybe I shouldn't make fun of his lisp. Okay. <laughs> Gene, of course, had no clue about my ear, which was covered up by my hair. But I was pre-programmed to dislike being scrutinized and judged. It wasn't, it wasn't a nice thing to do as far as I was concerned, and I wasn't eager to work with the guy. Gene wrote a lot of very odd songs. Maybe it was because he was originally from another country. I wasn't sure. He had one called Stanley the Parrot, and another called My Uncle is a Raft. He even had one called My Mother is the Most Beautiful Woman in the World. Um, okay, that's a bit weird. Still, the more we played together, the better it got. Gene and I liked the same kind of music, and we could sing harmonies well together. I decided I wanted to work with him. I could see a bigger picture now, and despite his idiosyncrasies as an only child, teamwork was not Gene's strong suit. We both were intelligent enough to know how to harness ambition, and after all, it would be a lot easier to slay the dragon with a second person to help. I just, it, it, Gene is uncharacteristically terse when it comes <laughs> to the, the four solo albums thing. And I just want just to get through this very quickly because I heard some talk about Ace being at the top of the sales chart there. <clears throat> Here's what Gene has to say. The solo project was unprecedented. No other group in history had ever released four solo albums simultaneously. All the albums did well. They sold strong initially and have continued to perform. <laughs> After 20 plus years of sales figures, I'm at the top. <laughs> slightly ahead of Ace, who is slightly ahead of Paul. Peter's sold the least well of the four. None of the albums really yielded hits. Peter didn't chart. <laughs> Sorry. on this, uh, these solo album trips. Let's go with this. We would make Kistery. Kistery. We would make Kistery by releasing four albums, solo albums on the same day. No band had ever done that before and no band has done it since. That's a constant. Yeah. <laughs> I wound up hiring Vinnie Poncia to produce me. He had produced Melissa Manchester, but I was more excited because he was Ringo Starr's co-writer. We hit it off immediately. 
I hadn't completely healed yet, so I played drums with little casts on each finger. <laughs> it was incredibly painful, but I had a goal in mind, to do the best album of the four and leave the band with dignity. My fingers weren't burning, my neck was in such pain I had to wear a brace. And when I really belted out a song, my ribs felt like I, was, I had just gotten stabbed. Vinny was really impressed with my dedication. I couldn't wait to get to the studio every day we recorded. There were never any arguments, no fights in the room, no egos, unlike my other recording experiences. I treated the musicians as if they were my real band, as if we had been together forever. When we recorded Rock Me Baby, I had three black backup singers, and we all got loaded on champagne and put our arms around each other and sang our hearts out. This was the way an album should be made, having great fun working with a great producer and great people. People often ask how I come up with my lyrics and ideas for songs. Well, take That's the Kind of Sugar Papa Likes. <laughs> a song on the album that I co-wrote with Stan. I was at the house one night watching Humphrey Bogart in The Treasure This Year, Madre. And in one scene, he finds out he has a winning ticket and he's going to get 200 pesos. He says, that's the kind of sugar Papa likes. Of course, we changed the sugar reference from money to sex. <laughs> How I ever completed an album while I was living in Vincent Price's house is beyond me. <laughs> what is that? That's a footnote, I guess. I really went into total Elvis mode. We'd do a session and then come back to the house and shoot some pool in the huge billiard room. If we got bored, we'd watch a movie in the theater that was almost the size of a small art house cinema. Vincent Price had a huge vault for storing mink coats, so we kept our champagne chilled in there. <laughs> On September 18th, record industry history was made when all four of our solo albums were released in the same day. Wow. They were a mixed bag for sure. My album reflected my musical tastes. Motown-inspired R&B with horns and black backup singers. <laughs> Paul's was more of the English Zeppelin sound that he liked. Ace's was his typical Hendrixy thing. And Gene's was the most bizarre, almost a pop album. He later wrote that his intent was to piss off KISS fans and push it in their faces that their musical tastes were one-dimensional and his weren't. <laughs> That's how crazy we were all then. To placate our egos, Neil had shipped each of the albums platinum, but collectively the albums sold what one KISS album would have, so the resulting returns destroyed Casablanca's bottom line. Two years later, Neil was forced to sell the company. Mm. History of it. That's the history. 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 Guys, I gotta go right to the end of this book. I gotta go right to the end of this book. Uh, the last chapter of No Regrets is Final Thoughts. And this is him just kind of thinking about what happened to this band that got to the top yeah. and then disintegrated. Does he have regrets? I wonder if he has regrets. I guess. Let's find. Let's find out. He's mad at Gene and Paul, basically. Gene and Paul. I've tried to rewrite history by downplaying my contributions to this band. On several CDs, they deleted my songs from the playlist. On DVD releases, they edited out a lot of my close-ups, <laughs> focusing primarily on themselves. It's like they were trying to erase me and my songs from the minds of KISS fans. New fans were completely unaware of the subterfuge because they hired other guys to play these two roles. And, and older fans just turned their back on the band or bit the bullet. What did you guys do? Bit the bullet. Okay. If anyone reading this book thinks I'm exaggerating or trying to distort the truth, do your own research. Examine the facts. <laughs> it's out of its mind. Since 2001, every move Kiss has made 
has been premeditated and part of a well-orchestrated plan. Nothing, including their attempts to minimize my contributions, have been left to chance. So you may wonder, how does Ace feel about KISS today? Fair enough, here's my response. At this point in my life, I just need to let things go. <laughs> Holding on to resentments can really make you ill, so I'll just leave the dirty work to my attorneys. <laughs> I can sum up Kiss situation in just five simple words. What goes around comes around. To those words he repeats. Uh, no matter what happens, I'll be just fine. That being said, in reality, I think they're all just a bunch of dirty, rotten whores. Awk! <laughs> That's the last thing in the book. Nice. Tell me I'm lying. Nice. Tell me I'm lying. She wants a She wants a I didn't let it go. I wish the whole book was just awk over awk, and over. Awk, awk. <laughs> but yeah, that seems right. Can you imagine? Before. All you go through this whole run, but you know, I've just let it all go, obviously. <laughs> let my lawyers do the dirty work. <laughs> Uh, before before I read my uh, my next passage, I, I want to put this out here there to you, Cole. I know a lot of times you have um, like Peter Bogdanovich was here and showed two of his films. Yeah. Why don't next year? Why don't we show Phantom of the Park? We get Peter and Ace to come up here. Sure. And uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I'd love to show that movie. That I don't know be... if I want to uh, have my team deal with Peter. And Ace. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like a reasonable guy. Yeah, sure. If we could just get someone to shoot heroin in his ass and give him a blowjob, I think he'd do it. But I, I, that's not a terrible idea, Pat. All right. Let me, uh, I'm going to read now, and we talked about it a little earlier uh, before we started reading about the Kiss reunion, which was very successful in 1996. I think that reunion went on for uh, about five years. But this is, uh, this is Paul talking about getting, uh, getting together and getting, dealing with Ace and Peter for their reunion tour. Not surprisingly, it took a lot of wrangling with Peter and Ace's representatives to get a deal in place. Ace insisted on getting more money than Peter because, as Ace put it, Peter wasn't worth as much as he was. <laughs> Peter hasn't done anything, Ace insisted. He hasn't been playing, and I'm more famous than he is. Of course, this was all behind Peter's back. For all the times Ace threw Peter under the bus, he should have had muscles like a professional bodybuilder. And yet, Peter still saw Ace as his teammate and buddy, no matter how many times Ace offered Peter up as a sacrificial lamb. In the past, people had told me, the time to find out that you don't want to be in bed with someone isn't when your clothes are off. <laughs> so we spelled everything out in the contracts with those guys. Ground rules, consequences for not following them, all the things we would and wouldn't do. And most importantly, we would rehearse to see how everyone responded to working together within carefully spelled out parameters. We left nothing to chance. Part of that included hiring personal trainers, not just for Peter and Ace, but for me and Gene too. We wanted the band to look the way people remembered us looking. The last thing I wanted was people to be disappointed when they saw a bunch of fat guys in tights. The trainers weren't bodybuilders or anything like that. It was about cardio and basic strength. Even so, the guy working with Peter was aghast. Not only at how weak he was and how low his endurance was, but also at how little Peter was willing to work. 
The trainer said it was like working with an old man. Peter had a tendency to explode at the trainer about nonsense because Peter didn't like working out. Ace, as usual, was just lazy. But he put in his time. Alongside the training, the physical training, we also started the rehearsal process, or tried to. We convened in L.A. in March, planning to rehearse for several months. It was imperative to look and sound great for these shows. Then Ace asked, why do we need to rehearse? I know these songs like the back of my hand. It quickly became apparent that Ace didn't know the back of his hand very well. (laughs) And Peter, Peter was another story. There was no point to rehearsing as a band. Peter and Ace didn't know the material, didn't know their parts. I called Tommy Thayer. Tommy knew our music inside out and would make a good coach. We wanted to be true to the original Kiss Alive versions of our classic songs. Listen, Tommy, I told him, we need you to get together with Peter one-on-one in the rehearsal studio, just you and him. You on guitar, Peter on his drums. You need to go through all the songs with him and make sure he knows what he's doing. After the first day of working one-on-one with Peter, Tommy called me. Paul, he said, sounding very serious. I don't know exactly how to say this. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I want to see this happen more than anything for the sake of everyone involved, Tommy continued. But, well, I have to be honest with you. I don't know how you guys are going to be able to do this. He paused. Then I laughed. I assumed he was joking. No, I'm serious, Tommy said. Playing with Peter is like playing with someone who picked up drumsticks for the first time today. It's like he's never played before. He doesn't remember anything, and he can't play. Somehow, this didn't surprise me. Not only had Peter failed to grow musically or to hone his craft over the years, he had neglected it. I still hoped Tommy could, hang, could bring him around. Give it a few more days, I said. You can do it. Tommy kept at it, recording their ses- sessions on cassette and bringing them over to play for me afterwards or playing them to me over the phone. Listening to the tapes was frustrating. At times, Tommy would gently say things like, "Eh, maybe that was uh, a little bit wasn't quite right. And Peter would shout at him aggressively, don't you fucking tell me how to play drums. (laughs) It was a thankless job having to be so diplomatic, having to take Peter's abuse. And for what? So Tommy, a guitar player, could teach Peter, supposedly a professional drummer, how to play his drums as well as a beginner again? In the end, Tommy taught Peter the parts like you would teach a dog a trick. It had nothing to do with music. But lo and behold, after a few weeks, it started to click. Peter had learned his tricks. He could roll over and play strutter. Here's, here's a little addendum to the, uh, to the reunion. Okay. Uh, at around the same time, I wanted a band biography to be written for the reunion tour, and I wanted someone famous to do it. <laughs> I tried to get Stephen King, but he was unavailable. <laughs> known, then, for, known for his biographies. Yeah. <laughs> then I tried to get Steven Spielberg, but he was unavailable. Then I thought about Bob Guccione, the editor of Spin. At that point, Spin was every bit as big as Rolling Stone. He agreed to write the bio, which would be a short thing, like a press release. 
I wanted him to put us on the cover of Spin. He thought it was a good idea, although he wasn't sure it should be the whole band. He wanted a cover picture of me alone. <laughs> While talking to him, I saw a larger opportunity, and the ideas just started flying out of my mouth. <laughs> I ended up pitching him on a collector's edition set of four identical Kiss covers, one for each of us. So actually not identical at all, because it's different. <laughs> the KISS fans will want to buy all four of them, I said. When the four solo covers of Spin came out, I, bought, I brought them all into rehearsals at Cobo Hall in Detroit before our first performance to show Ace and Peter that I was pushing the band, not myself. As long as I live, I'll never forget Ace's reaction. He picked up his solo cover and said, I fucking hate this. This sucks. I'm leaving the band. <laughs> and he walked out. He later came back calmer and explained that he didn't like his photograph. By the end of the day, he was looking around and asking us if we really thought his picture looked okay. Subsequently, I learned that Guccione had pr uh, printed 60% Gene Simmons covers, 25% Paul Stanley covers, the remaining 15% was divided between Ace and Peter covers. <laughs> it was not the equal printing. Everyone thought it was. <laughs> So, so Cole, do you, do you have something good? Do you want to close it out with for us, Cole? Do you have uh, something great? Well, this is a pretty erotically charged passage. Uh, and by the way, I want to add that um, flying here today, my worry was that one of us was going to forget their book, and had that happened, that person would have read from Anna Kendrick's uh, autobiography. <laughs> right, thank you for repeating that, man. All right, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Cole. I interrupted you. All right, I don't think this needs much setup, so okay. here we go. <laughs> When I came to after I blacked out, I didn't know where I was for a few seconds. All I knew was that a naked woman who had been wearing a ram's head was giving me head while I was slumped in a huge chair fit for a king. <laughs> That's how you start a chapter. <laughs> sounds, like, sounds like Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> and then Steven Spielberg. Yeah, and then Bobby very good. <laughs> I looked over to a corner of the room and a guy was fucking a chick doggy style and her titties were bouncing in joyous unison. <laughs> Next to them, two guys were sucking each other off. Was I tripping on acid? What do you mean, what? You're in San Francisco. <laughs> Get it together. Guys suck each other's dicks sometimes. <laughs> Jesus. So when I looked the other way. <laughs> Are you all right? <laughs> when I looked the other way, I felt some relief to recognize Ace, who was banging some chick in the corner. Then I remembered. We were shooting the cover for our second album. <laughs> with the great photographer Norman Seif. Seif had hired 20 women and 20 men to surround us in some elaborate medieval gothic tableau. To lubricate the scene, the set was stocked with plenty of champagne, scotch, whiskey, rum, you name it. It might have been the scotch that gave me the temporary amnesia. It was certainly all the liquor that fueled what became more of an orgy than a photo shoot. But as drunk as I was, Paul was even more sloshed, which was a rarity for a guy who was so concerned with losing his cool. He was lying half-naked on a velvet bed, offering no resistance at all to the half-dozen girls and guys who were buzzing around him like bees drawn to honey. That's why Gene made his move. 
If one dick had gone into Paul's defenseless mouth or up his ass, there would have been seven more dicks a swarming. <laughs> Eight lords a leaping, seven dicks a swarming. Five golden. So Gene swooped in and grabbed Paul and carried him out of Dante's Inferno. He deposited him in the back seat of our rental car and locked the doors. Welcome to L.A. <laughs> all right, look, thank you for sitting while we said, uh, while we all said dick a couple of times. Dick's a swarming. Dick's I mean, a swarming. That's a dream come true for Dick's me. Can I, say, can, I, can I read one little, just very little I, thing? Absolutely you can, Wayne. This is just because a big part of the show, the magic show, as I call it, is the fire breathing. Yes. And for some reason, Ace talks about what how this affected Gene, okay? Gene has said a lot of unkind things about me over the years. Some of the criticisms, criticism, legitimate. In sobriety, you embrace accountability, and I can't deny that my drinking and drug use eventually became highly disruptive and problematic. <laughs> but some of the personal jabs have been harder to take because we were all friends at one time. And also, Gene wasn't exactly the easiest guy to get along with. Strange, because we had so little in common. A more logical parent, oh, so he, so he, he was roomed with Gene for a while. Okay, so this is what he goes. At one point, I discovered Gene was an epic slob. I remember the first time we were sitting in our hotel room after a show, I looked over at Gene and saw him spitting on the floor over and over. I said, what the fuck are you doing, man? Gene cleared his throat, dragged a thick wad of phlegm, and spat it right on the carpet. Throat's killing me, he said in a raspy voice. One hand, I felt bad. Gene had a problem. Whenever he did the fire breathing, which was just about every night, it was every, it's every night. night. It was it's every, every night. night. Part of the show. For hours afterwards, he'd be spitting up and coughing up shit. The kerosene really agitated his system, which is understandable. What was not understandable was his insistence on spitting all over the floor. I was afraid to walk in the bathroom in the middle of the night for fear of stepping on a pile of mucus. Jesus, Jim, can you at least use a garbage can or something? Hawk, another gob of phlegm, another puddle on the floor. It was disgusting. <laughs> so those who've been to the Kiss show, there's more to it. When you, it's fun yeah. for us to see that. I think we all remember when the Beatles used to do stuff like that. Yeah. Right? All right. Thank you all for coming. Uh... These books, these books are ridiculous. I, I love reading them in front of people. Uh, Cole, you did a great job as, uh, as our, uh, the newest member. Yeah. You're like the replacement player. You're like, you're like Eric Carr. You're like the, the fox. And we welcome you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, a big round of applause for everyone on the panel tonight. Uh, Cole Stratton, everybody. He's one of the reasons that we're here. Dave Holmes. One of my favorites, Wayne Fetterman. Dropping the, dropping the digital needle, Kyle Dotson. And I'm Pat Francis. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Rock Solid. 
And uh, if you're around tomorrow, come see our show at the Swedish American Music Hall. Yep. With our with our very special guest, Mr. Weird Al Yankovic. Thank you, and good night, everybody. Yeah.